Hello, this is Peter Morville, and today I'm talking with Carl Fast about planning. I've known Carl since Y2K, when we hired him as an information architect at Argus Associates. And yes, I do feel guilty for tricking him into moving uh, to the United States from Canada. Anyways, since then, uh, Carl has served as a professor of user experience design at Kent State University, and more recently as director of information architecture at Normative. He's also working with Steven Anderson on a book about design for understanding. Uh, Carl is one of the smartest people I know, so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Hi, Carl. Hi, Peter. So maybe you can start out and tell us a little bit about what you're up to these days uh, at Normative, uh, and then maybe a little about your book. Sure. Well, um, uh, after uh, seven years, uh, I guess it was seven years at Kent State and working to build the user experience program there, uh, we made a big change. And so we moved to Minneapolis and I began working with Normative. We're a design studio in Toronto um, where we have a whole bunch of different things that we do around research and design and strategy and development. And a lot of the work that we are interested in has to do with the future and where things are be going in the next three, four, five years. And a lot of the clients that we work with involve sort of complicated um, complicated problems for our clients where they know that the future is going to change. They know that that's going to make big changes for their business. Uh, and so a lot of the work that we're interested in is how do we help them see that future and understand that future and, and, and take a glimpse so that we can put them on a, on a useful path. Awesome. And when it comes to the book, uh, Stephen Anderson and I, we're writing this book called Design for Understanding. This is really primarily his book. Um, and we're looking at this question about what does it mean not to provide people with information, but how do you help it so that the information that they do find is is understandable, can help them solve problems, can help them make decisions. You know, we live in a world where we're just overwhelmed with information and lack of information is a problem we do not have. Um, but finding information also, in many cases, is also not that difficult. We are easily can find lots of information, too much information. So how do we make sense of that? How do we understand the information we do find? How do we work with it? Um, and we look at a number of different ways in which you can design for understanding. So part of it is how you can represent that information in better uh, ways. A lot of the work that I'm interested in in that book, my contribution has a lot to do with how do you interact with that information? How does the way that you work with that information help you understand it? and make sense of it and reason with it. Uh, and then what does that lead us to in terms of the ways that we will work with information to understand it in the future as our technologies change, and especially as we move into a world beyond screens, uh, beyond where we just have pixels on a rectangle. Do you have any examples of how interaction with information helps you make sense of it? Yeah, well, my classic example here comes from a study that was done about 25 years ago in which people played Tetris. And so the... The story here was that um, if you think about classic cognitive science, the idea is we have, we take in information and then we think about that. We have this cognitive piece that happens. And then the result of that is that we act on the world. Mm -hmm. um, and so when it comes to playing Tetris, there's really only four things that you can do. You can take a piece and you can rotate it uh, 90 degrees in clockwise. You can move it one space to the left. You can move it to the right, or you can drop it down into position. And when it comes to, uh, so, so what, you, what you see is people will do a lot of mistakes early on when they're new Tetris players. They'll move a space, say three spaces to the left, and then they'll move it back one, and then they'll drop it into position. Mm 
Or they'll rotate it once, and then they think, ah, maybe that's right, not sure. So then they'll rotate it again, and they'll realize, oh, one rotation was all I needed, but now they've done two. So they have to keep rotating it all the way around so they, until they get it back to that original position. So they'll have these over-rotations. And, and what you would expect is that over time, as people become more skilled at Tetris um, and more experienced at the game, that those extra movements left and right and those extra rotations would decrease. Uh, the study looked at how people played Tetris and did this very careful keystroke level analysis. And what they found was that this is somewhat situationally dependent, but in general, people actually do extra movements and extra rotations more as they become a more experienced player. And the best players, the most skilled ones, actually did the most over rotations and the most of these extra movements. Um, and so what they did was they sort of argued that action here in terms of behaving intelligently really was – we had this sort of very limited notion about interaction. Um, and they argued for a distinction between what they called pragmatic action and epistemic action. So the idea of a, a pragmatic action is that you have a desired sort of goal state in the world. I, I want to uh, move this piece into this particular position or I want to uh, drink a glass of water. And so when you're when you're doing this pragmatic action – Every step that you take towards achieving that goal um, is something that is that is that is good. But anything that does not move you efficiently towards that goal, that would be a mistake. Mm -hmm. So if I'm thirsty and I pick up a glass of water and I like spill it on my shirt, that is clearly a mistake. But they argued that there were a lot of other cases which they called epistemic actions. So epistemic, as in epistemology, as in you know, relating to the study of knowledge and how we know things. And so they argued that um, epistemic actions had a lot more to do with how we create knowledge and understanding through the world. And an example here would be playing chess, right? So you take, a, you take your bishop and you pick up your bishop and you move it into position, but you don't take your finger off the bishop. You sort of hold it. And as soon as you move it, you're like, oh, that's a bad move and I'm going to be in checkmate. So then you take the bishop and you, you move it back. And as an interaction designer, you could look at that and say, ah, well, I've done two moves, right? I, I did one move to move the bishop, and then I pressed undo. Yep. And if that was a pragmatic action, you've just made a mistake because the world is now exactly as it was. But in an epistemic action, what you're doing is you're interacting with the world, not really to change the world so much as you're doing this to change your understanding of the world. Mm -hmm. Right. So moving that you could technically, right, you should be able to perceive the state of the world just by imagining the bishop in that other location. But that's hard to do for most people. Right. And expert chess players, of course, don't do this at all. They can imagine multiple moves. Right. right. That's what makes them experts. But for most of us, for mere mortals, we do these kinds of things all the time. And that's what was happening, they argued, in the in the Tetris example. It was actually easier and faster to rotate a piece multiple times, perceive it, and check it against the world, rather than just perceiving it in its original position, rotating in your head, and then comparing it. Physically moving it was actually a lot easier, and it was faster, and it reduced the chance that you would make a mistake. And we tend to discount these kinds of actions. We tend to say, oh, well, those are extra or these are extraneous actions or these are mistakes and this is inefficient. But there's this whole body of literature which has sort of said, just kind of argued that, well, interaction is really a fundamental part of how we understand the world. And so that's that's a lot of what I'm writing about in, in the book. Fascinating. Yeah, this fits this fits um, you know, with, with some of my thinking about planning. 
um, and kind of connects to embodied cognition and extended mind and the idea that we, you know, we think with our bodies and our tools. Yeah. So, so I have a question for you about this to, to, to begin here when it comes to plans. How, when you think of a plan, what is your idea of a plan? How, how do you define a plan? Uh, so at its simplest, I think, uh, you know, we are, we are in the here and now. Uh, we uh, define a goal, um, something we want to achieve in the future. Uh, and a plan is, is sort of defining steps or a path to the goal. But planning is the, is the act of thinking about all the different paths that we might take, all the different ways we might approach um, trying to achieve a goal, and even questioning the goal itself or our, 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 the ways that we derive goals. Okay. And so, and things like, how do you deal with um, problems that arise, right? When you go about, you know, performing the plan. Yes. I, I mean, yes, absolutely. Um, because uh, in most real world contexts, then uh, there will be disruptions. Uh, one woman that I interviewed uh, several months back uh, put it this way, uh, the way that she explains things to, to the executive she works with in sort of a project management context is that both the plan and the change have to happen. <laughs> um, and, and so the, you know, my approach to planning is sort of recognizing that, uh, you know, we live in a, in a uncertain and, and disruptive world where, you know, staying wedded to a fixed plan is, you know, usually not going to work out so well. Um, and so we need a kind of a flexible way of, of creating and, and reshaping plans. So this, this notion of change and um, related to plans and how we deal with those types of things, I think is really central to how we define what it even, what we even mean by plans and, and planning. Mm -hmm. You know, there's that old idea, that old famous quote about like planning is essential, but all plans are essentially worthless. Uh -huh. Right. I can't read the exact quote. I think it was Eisenhower. Um, but we, we, this, this idea is like what, is what is a plan? And I think, you know, you talk to this in, in your description where, you know, a, a plan is some sort of artifact that you can follow in this sort of step-by-step -step fashion. Uh, it's about imagining this, you know, this desired goal state that you have in the world um, and how you might get there, thinking about all the different sequence of steps, like driving from A to B. And so you, you have this idea that you, you, you use, we use this phrase, I have a plan, right? And so this strongly suggests this idea that there's a plan that you could actually write it out, uh -huh. right? You could point to it. Maybe it's something that's in your head as some as a sequence of operations. Maybe it actually is something that is written out. It's a checklist. It's a Gantt chart. But there is some sort of artifact in some representational form, be it in your head or in the world, and that that once you have this kind of plan, that really uh, then it becomes a matter of executing the plan. Right. There's a plan that exists in some form. So the first step is to create the plan, which can be very complicated, might be very simple. Um, and then you go about executing the plan and there are going to be things that will derail you. There's exceptions, et cetera. Um, but there's there's kind of another idea about plans, I think, that's really important as well, whereas planning is less about some sort of recipe or program or sequence of steps and more about improvisation. Yes. Um, and that you have a, a general goal and some sort of outcome, but the plan is not really articulated 
in this series of steps, but it's much more about a plan. It develops as you proceed closer and the things that happen to you along the way, the information that you pick up through the world, um, the world becomes this resource as you evolve and develop your plan as part of the action itself. And so it's more of this, this interactive process, this activity, um, rather than the sort of, you know, two phase process of creating the plan and then executing the plan. Absolutely. And I, I use the term incremental planning. Uh, and I, I like the, uh, there's a phrase from the world of Agile, uh, the last responsible moment, uh, which is sort of a recognizing that certain decisions you really want to wait um, until you have more information. Uh, and so you, you, you sort of hold off until the last responsible moment before committing to certain kind of courses. Yeah, planning, planning and this idea has a pretty old history. And like, as I, you know, when we talked at, at the beginning here, and I mentioned that story about um, Tetris and the epistemic actions, that actually ties into some old, old, some, to some research, which looks, um, which is related to artificial intelligence, and to some of the early ideas around cognitive science. Uh-huh. Um, and there's actually a famous book, which I'm sure you're familiar with, called Plans and Situated Actions by Lucy Sukman. This is from the late, um, late 1980s. And it is, the subtitle is The Problem of Human-Machine Communication, and it's generally cited as one of the major works in human-computer interaction. But it's actually a critique, originally, of artificial intelligence. And as that, it also turns out to be a critique of cognitive science. And I think that's quite interesting because so much of human computer interaction depends on these early, is built on these early ideas uh, from cognitive science. The the book opens with uh, an anecdote um, quoted from another book about navigation. And she, the story here, just sort of to summarize it is, consider the difference between how sort of the European model of navigation, where you say want to cross the Mediterranean, and you've got a map, and you've got a destination, and so you chart a course to the destination on the map, and that that is the plan. Mm-hmm. Right? And so you follow the plan then, and anything that happens, such as a storm, is simply a you means you're diverted from the plan, and you work with this error, this mistake, right? And you're trying to get yourself back to the plan so that you can then continue following the plan, right? Right. But another method that you could look at would be is navigators, say, in, in Polynesia. Um, and so historically, they would set off towards some place without a map, right? And they might have, they had an objective, but they don't have a specific plan. They don't have a particular route in mind. They would generate that plan in response to the wind and the waves and the current. And if, if a storm happens, it's not about the storm isn't disrupting the plan. It's part of the plan because the plan didn't exist a priori. It exists only in the moment as this fluid evolving process that is in response to the things that happen along the way. So you kind of have these two big general ideas if you want to put them in opposition to each other. You know, you have this Western European idea that's rooted in abstraction, mm-hmm. right? The plan is abstracted from the world. And so you have general principles and you take those general principles and you use those, like in this case, how to navigate, and you apply those to a specific case to formulate the plan and then you execute the plan. But the other approach has nothing to do with abstraction, right? Like it is in and of the world itself. It is situated, mm. right? You can't point to a plan uh, you can't point to a specific sequence of actions. Only you, you can only do that in hindsight, 
right? You could say, well, this is the plan that they followed, but they didn't really follow that as a plan. So there's a very different kind of approach to planning. And I, I think that those two models are to some extent, um, maybe to a large extent, reflected in what we see with Agile, where Agile has a lot of the rhetoric in Agile is about is anti-planning. Uh-huh. But what it really is, is I think is much more anti-planning in this Western European abstracted model where you do tons and tons of work up front and the problems a lot, uh, you, you get major problems whenever you have this deviation from the plan because you have this notion that you can predict everything in advance and you're trying to minimize that. The problem I think with Agile is it almost takes a little bit too much in the other direction. Yep. Right. This notion that we'll just evolve and figure it out as you go along. And that responsiveness is very valuable, but I think you can easily swing too far in the other direction. Yeah. And, and the, the word that comes to mind in, in describing the second approach is wayfinding, uh, which is a wonderful word because, uh, it doesn't presume a, 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 a destination, <laughs> uh, but you're constantly finding your way. Yes. Yeah, and you're picking up signals as you go along. So mm-hmm. it's less about this notion of, oh, my goodness, am I following the plan? Am I following the plan? Or uh, And it's more about how am I developing this? How am I responding to things that are happening in the world? And that's very much the case when I talked about the epistemic actions, right? You are using the world as a resource through the activity itself as you are working towards your outcomes rather than – uh, the world simply being something that you have to cope with, which is thwarting your plan that you have developed so carefully in yeah. advance. Yeah, interesting. This is really so, – so there's a lot of interesting stuff here that goes back to um, like artificial intelligence because um, this is a really big question. If you're going to make like, – when we're talking about planning for human beings and how we would make plans, you're talking about an intelligent creature, which is how does it go about achieving a goal, accomplishing some objective. Right. What are the ways by, by which we do this? And that's an important question in artificial intelligence as well. Right. How do we make a robot that can do something interesting? Uh, and this turns out to have this huge, long history um, that predates artificial intelligence as well. So if you go back, say, like 100 years, uh-huh. you get uh, – psychology was – based on this idea of introspection, right? Like, so the, the way to study the human mental life or the mind was to, to look inward and to know your own mind. Um, so you get things with Freud and all the other kinds of stuff around introspection. But behaviorism then comes along and says, whoa, you can't do that. You cannot look inside your own mind. You can't do that. You can't really know how the mind works. And um, all you can really do is just sort of look at inputs and outputs, Right. So you took it information and like this, the stimulus, the environmental stimulus that is provided to an intelligent creature. And then something happens inside. It's just a black box. But then you get this output, this action as an output. Mm-hmm. And so you get all these studies and behaviorism where it's like, okay, you know, you, um, where you ring a bell, you get to put a rat in a cage and you ring a bell and you feed them some food or you don't feed them food or you shock them with electricity or all these kinds of things. And so you manipulate these inputs to look at the outputs. But what goes on inside is just this black box. Right. Right. It is unknowable. Um, and in some versions of behaviorism, this, this became pretty extreme. Uh, there's, there's an old joke in behaviorism um, where it is <laughs> two behaviorists make love. 
And at the end of it, one of them turns to the other and says, well, I know how it was for you, but how was it for me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? And so cognitive science in the mid-1950s sort of begins in a reaction to this. So you have, this is a common thing in, in uh, um, scholarly work, where you get this idea that takes root, but it's a reaction to the previous idea. But then that becomes really dogmatic, yep. right? And then you get another reaction to this. And so you have introspection, and then you get behaviorism, and then you get cognitive science. And cognitive science comes along and says, wait a second, like you, you can, if we're really clever, you can infer what's happening inside the mind. You can, if I give you some words in a particular sequence and ask you to repeat them in a well-designed experiment, I can infer something about human memory. And the classic paper in cognitive science was sort of like the, almost the, um, the genesis paper for many people is the magic number seven plus or minus two by George Miller, mm. in which he argued that human memory is limited and can only hold the short-term memory, can hold about seven items plus or minus two. But current research says it's really about four items. Kind of depends a little bit. Um, but the important piece of the article, which is usually forgotten, is that Miller tried to uh, – he argued and introduced a new term, which he called chunks. And so this was this internal mechanism inside the mind, the structure in the mind, for how we could remember more complex information. So the classic example is your, your phone number, which is broken into groups of numbers. In North America, right, it's three digits, three digits, and then four digits, and each of those – is a chunk. It's hard to remember 10 digits, but it's relatively easy to remember three chunks of three, three, and then four. Mm -hmm. And so this was sort of this notion in cognitive science. Oh, okay, well, we can, we have representations in the mind. And this was the beginning of this idea to um, figure out the structure of the mind. And artificial intelligence begins around at the same time. And the idea was if you want to build an intelligent robot, that can do particular kinds of actions, it obviously needs to pick up information in the world and then do something with that information. And so it creates these symbols in the mind, these representations, and then you can do computation on these. So think about something like your, your GPS, right? Right. So you get a GPS and you say, I want to go to, um, I want to go to Starbucks. So you put Starbucks in and what does the GPS do? Well, it, it has a map right? And it's got information. It's got this rich representation of the world. And it figures out, it knows where you are in your location. And it knows the location of the Starbucks that you're going to go to. And then it can plan a route. And then your job, its job then is to execute the plan. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, we used to have an old, used to have an old GPS from Garmin. And every time that I would miss a turn, whether it was intentional or not, it would say recalculating, recalculating, until I got back on the plan, right. right? Because I had screwed up in some way. But even if I knew, like I've got a stop near our house here where I go down and from, uh, there are certain times in the day where you do not want to go to that stoplight mm -hmm. because I have to turn left on that stoplight. And it's, it's not even allowed to turn left at that stoplight <laughs> at those times. But the GPS doesn't know that. And it doesn't know that there's lots of times where it's bad. So I will always turn the block, the couple of blocks before and skirt around. And the GPS says, oh, recalculating, recalculating. But I'm actually following the plan, right? I'm following my plan and, and my knowledge of this. And I'm, I'm recognizing where to go. The GPS has no ability to do this. Yep. Um, so suppose you wanted, to, so th there's a, th this question of, 
planning becomes really important in the AI literature. And for all through the 60s and 70s and through most of the 80s, the idea of planning really is we create create a rich representation of the world inside the robot's head. And once you've got this really rich representation, then you can use that to construct a plan and then you execute the plan. Yeah. And so the key idea in a lot of this was like that good representation was considered to be the key to artificial intelligence. And if it's the key to artificial intelligence, then obviously it should also be the key to human intelligence too. And so the, there's a lot the of representation fits with that first idea of, of navigation, right? The, the abstraction. Yes. But you can navigate in more than one ways, right? Like I navigate through an airport, not because I have this preloaded map in my head of the airport, right. but because I'm picking up signals from all these different signs. Yep. So there's clearly like there are lots of examples. Uh, there's It's trivial to think of examples where you do not operate from rich knowledge of the world and all the possible consequences and have this abstraction in your head where you're merely executing on this. Right. At the same time, there are cases where you are doing that to some degree. But you get this story where artificial intelligence just keeps doing this and doing this. And an example would be, um, how do you make, and this is a problem that was, that was tackled in the research literature, how do you make a robot that can go around and pick up pop cans? <laughs> right? Like go around and pick up empty pop cans and figure out whether the pop can is full or whether it's empty or even if it is a pop can. So if you think about this in the classic sense, right, where we have to have this rich representation of the world, if that's the key to creating intelligent behavior and planning, then you have to give the robot the knowledge of the room or the ability to, like, create that representation of the entire room and all of the objects in the room and then develop a plan and then execute it. And some of the earliest robots, they, that's basically what they did, was they would create a special room, and because computer vision, to, vision was pretty limited and the processing power was limited, you would have like special lines on the wall or special sensors, and then it would go around. But while this could mostly work, the problem was, what if you put it in a different room? Yep. Right? Or what if you put something that kind of looked like a pop can but wasn't a pop can? Or like all of these types of things would create these massive failure points. And so the system could intel behave intelligently and create and follow plans within very, very limited constraints. Right. It was really brittle. So Rodney Brooks is a famous researcher at MIT, and he wrote this paper called um, Intelligence Without Representation. And he argued that all this work on AI was fundamentally flawed. It required the robot to either be given a robust representation of the world or to develop that before it could do any meaningful action. Mm -hmm. And he was like, this, this doesn't really seem workable because like, how long does it take you when I put you into a new airport to figure out where to go? Right. I mean, there are lots of things that you do along the way, but you don't need to have a map of the whole airport. Right. So he argued that this focus on representation was way overblown. Um, and he actually wound up developing a robot based on a completely different architecture for, uh, for moving around the world and determining features and uh, where um, you could put it into any environment. And it would sort of 
bumble around and figure out what were pop cans and what were not pop cans. And the idea was to take a more horizontal approach. Let's not work on solving lots and lots of different tasks within a particular well-defined environment. Let's focus on a one single task, picking up pop cans, for example, in any environment. Um, and as he put it, rather than giving people, giving the robot a rich model of the world, let's let the, the world is its own best model. Mm-hmm. As he argued. And this actually leads directly to things like the Roomba. Right. So he, that actually is a company that uh, Brooks and his and uh, colleagues developed. Okay. And so the Roomba vacuum cleaner comes directly out of this research. And as you know, when you get a Roomba or any of those sort of vacuum cleaners, you don't need to sit there and say, oh, and, and punch in all this information and give it a floor plan of your house. You just put it down. Yep. Right. And it figures it out. And this comes out of this completely different way of thinking about planning mm-hmm. and how we work in the world. Interesting. Yeah. So it's, I mean, there's a, a, amazing parallels between uh, uh, human and artificial intelligence in this respect. There are amazing, amazing kinds of parallels. Now, there's a ton of work that has to be done here to really build these up. But I think what's interesting about the work that Brooks and other people have done in AI, and you get this turn in artificial intelligence starting in the late 80s and early 90s, um, and has led to a lot of sort of modern breakthroughs with these robotics. Interestingly, you know, that paper that Brooks wrote was rejected by conference after conference and journal after journal. <laughs> Uh, it was simply not accepted. It was too heretical. But what happened was it waited, it made its way onto the reading list at all of the top, um, graduate programs in artificial intelligence and robotics and became kind of this underground classic. And so eventually the top journal in AI had to publish it in the early nineties. Wow. It was just too influential. Crazy. It is kind. It is. It is crazy. But I. Th- it, crazy, it, it but also, normal. <laughs> it all. It is. It is normal. So it, it, again, you have this example of the, this reaction, and I think that's going to be important here with what we're seeing with Agile, right? Agile is this huge reaction to this notion of how do we plan, and we can do all of this work up front, mm-hmm. and then we just execute the plan. And this can get pretty extreme, where you have like six months of planning effort, right? And then you go and execute the plan. Or two years of planning effort, and of course, by that point, the world has fundamentally changed, yep. and your plan is now worthless. Um, and so people have been learning some hard lessons in AI and robotics around this stuff, and it's the same kind of thing in artificial intelligence here as well. Or sorry, in, uh, in, in human-computer interaction. Uh, around the same time, and there's another paper that I would point people to. It's called The Intelligent Use of Space by David Kirsch. Um, and Kirsch is a cognitive scientist at UC San Diego, I believe. And this is, um, his work has been largely in, in distributed cognition and how people do interaction. He's the person who wrote this paper on epistemic actions that I mentioned at the okay. beginning. Um, this actually appears in a journal, in the Journal of Artificial Intelligence. And it was a critique of artificial intelligence and robotics and how they do planning. And what he argued was that we use the space around us as part of how we think. We use it to simplify choice. We use it to simplify perception. We use it to simplify mental computation. Um, and that paint, that, that the space is not something we deal with as we execute the plan. That space is really this resource as we formulate our plans and go about achieving objectives. So I, an example that he gives is, um, 
is chefs working with a vegetable platter. So I give you like a large, uh, say, elliptical platter. It's not a platter that you've ever used before. It's a particular size and shape. Um, and I give you like a bunch of – a bowl full of chopped um, cucumbers and carrots and red pepper slices. And you're supposed to lay them all out in one of those really nice, beautiful things you would see when you go to a banquet, right, on this big – this big platter. So how, how do you do that? Um, and what an amateur chef will do is just sort of just pick them up and try to put them down and make lots of mistakes. But what the expert chef will do is they will not put the, the vegetables in piles. They're going to lay them out in rows because perceptually when you lay it out in a row, it's a lot easier to judge how many things you have and how many things are left. And it's easier to do that computation about how tight do you put things or how tightly or loosely do you um, space things as you're putting them out onto the platter. You're using the space around you to facilitate the plan as you develop it as you go. Mm -hmm. But if you did a pre-planned way, you would have to say, okay, maybe you would like count all of the cucumbers and then you would take out a piece of pencil and a paper and you would do some calculations and some trigonometry and like that, that doesn't make any sense, right? It's just not an intelligent way to do it. Um, and he argued like we use the space around us to do things very, in, you know, this is a very important part of how we think and how we develop plans in the moment. Yeah. Um, Ikea furniture would be another really good example that everyone I think can relate to. You, you get some furniture, you need to put it together and you actually literally get a plan in the box, right? Right. But what, what do you not do? You don't, you don't like take everything and just dump it onto the floor and then go, okay, this is piece one and then piece two and piece three and piece four and prepare all the pieces in the sequence that you're going to need them. You'll generally like sort of group things kind of together. Maybe some things will be in a loose pile. You'll kind of rearrange things in the floor. Oh, as you figure out how things fit together, you're going to coordinate this work between the piece of paper, the plan that it has for you. But you always have to do this adjustment. This is a very rich, intricate, interactive kind of process. It's not, I mean, there's kind of a recipe and a plan there. But it doesn't follow in this neat step-by-step -step kind of sequence the way we might if we were developing a robot in the classic sense. Yep. So I think this idea, what, what they've learned in robotics and artificial intelligence is really informative about how we think about plans. And we've got these two sort of ends of a spectrum. On the one, we have this notion of planning as this hugely abstracted idea where we create this abstraction and then we execute it. And on the other, it's much more improvisational. Um, and I think that in a lot of cases, we need to be really cognizant of where our work fits on that spectrum and what is appropriate for the situation that we are in. And that is where a lot of the more effective planning is going to happen. And that's the sort of the useful framework I would want to leave people with. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and the, you know, one of the lessons of, of all of this is to try to not get, um, uh, get, sort of swept away by the latest pendulum swing, but to, but to sort of recognize that, you know, to go back to the earlier example that the, the Western European sort of abstract map and plan, um, has value as does the Polynesian sort of wayfinding method. And, uh, part of the challenge is figuring out what's the right balance given your context. Yes. Yes. I don't, uh, I think that either extreme is probably wrong in almost every case, <laughs> right? Uh, right. That's certainly true. But I think the real the real value is not so much in saying I'm in this model or I'm in this model, but where is my situation right now? Yeah. Right. 
and and where do I want to go about about tuning this in uh, for the problem that I am I am facing and recognizing that everything involves sort of a mixture of both, but to say that it's a mixture of both isn't really enough, right? It's almost like that's, 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 it's almost a wishy-washy answer mm-hmm. in that it doesn't give you specific. It doesn't give. I don't think it gives people enough specific guidance. Yeah. Um, so breaking this down even further, I think, will be really helpful. Um, and I assume that some of the other people you've talked to have ideas around that. Yeah. So I wanted to, wanted to switch gears a little bit. You you had mentioned at the beginning in, in sort of your work at Normative uh, that you're helping people to sort of see and understand and think about the future. Um, mm-hmm. What are your sort of tools or methods for for helping people to do that? Oh well. Um, that that's that's a tough question. Yeah. Um, it, it involves a number of different things. So at the team level, a lot of what we are doing is not really producing sorts of wireframes and traditional design documentation that we might normally do. Mm-hmm. We have a large software side of the of the company where we work to rapidly build prototypes to test ideas and to also. Uh, so that people can see and touch and feel the idea, uh-huh. but also uh, as a tool that we can use to assess and validate things. So we make a lot of MVPs for people to explore, to rapidly explore hypotheses um, and do that validation to determine which of several different directions would be the most fruitful and what is working. Um, and that is, uh, in many ways, kind of like this planning idea where we are more about being uh, evolving and improvising as opposed to planning everything out in advance and then just going ahead and executing on that. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So that's that's one of the things. We also do lots of uh, uh, field research. We find that a lot of organizations uh, doing good ethnographic work is still a very difficult skill, even as we have a lot of companies who are building up large in-house design teams. Those designers tend to be more horizontal or as a team, they tend to be more general. Yep. They cover a lot of different bases, but they may not be extremely deep in certain kinds of areas. And it's still sometimes hard for, you know, if you're building up an in-house team, there are certain skills that you want and doing ethnographic research may be a little bit further down for you as an organization in terms of your overall, um, you know, design maturity of the organization. Uh-huh. So that's something that we definitely do. Um, and that often can work with the prototypes. I, I also have what I kind of think of as a secret weapon. Um, maybe it's not going to be so secret after this. But, um, I and this should have really come clear from everything that I've talked about here. I I, I love the academic research literature, mm-hmm. um, and I really love it because of how it is. I I, I don't love the new stuff, um, because the new stuff sort of is always going to take 10, 15, or 20 years before it really begins to play out. But I love stuff from 10, 15, or 20 years ago. I give a workshop on designing information filtering interfaces. And and in that workshop, one of my keystone examples is, is is several different modern websites and applications, but also some research that was developed in the between 1989 and 1994, 95, things like that. Um, where back then you needed like a spark workstation with, it was, you need like a 10, $20,000 workstation to do it. And now you can do the same kind of things in your browser using an open source toolkit on your phone. Uh Right. And so 
those point to a lot of possibilities, but you also have a lot more experience and a lot of other data points around what's really happening in the world and what works for actual users as you get it uh, when it's operating uh, at scale in terms of lots and lots of people who are using it. Um, and so those give you really interesting ideas and indicators about where to go. But the a lot of that academic literature, it's people who are in the academic world – write a lot of interesting papers and do a lot of interesting research. But the whole point of that is not to apply it in any way. Right. Right. Like, why do you write a, if you, if you're a professor, why do you write a paper so that you can write another paper? (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's not so you can do anything with that paper. The whole point is to write another paper. So it's almost as though you have all this whole group of people who are produced, leading this trail of, of gold nuggets all over the ground. There's not a lot of people who have the ability or incentivized to go around and pick up those nuggets and figure out how to turn them into a golden necklace. Uh-huh. And there's work involved in doing that, right? It's not just a case of picking up a paper and reading it. So a lot of the stuff that I'm interested in, a lot of what I do is looking for some of this hard stuff there where there's a lot of deep thinking and a lot of rigorous analysis and trying to find that stuff and connect the dots between that and relate it to the uh, the practice that we are building at normative and the challenges that our clients have great so i have one last question for you um i remember back when you lived in ann arbor uh, Mm -hmm. you had uh Sort of the best personal library collection I've ever seen. Uh, an amazing set of books on fascinating topics. Uh, so I'm curious, are you still curating your library? And, and if so, any, any books, uh, kind of, uh, you know, published recently that you would recommend to folks? Yes. Um, I do still have a large library and I am always reading things. Let me see what is Currently, well, I've got two. Let me point to two right now that are on my shelf that I have read in the last six months uh-huh. that I think are really, um, they're really quite interesting about ideas that I think are really important. Um, one is called Deep Work Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World by Cal Newport. He's a professor of computer science at Georgetown, I believe. Um, and he argues that if you want to create real value, you should make a distinction between shallow work and deep work. And that shallow work is work that almost anybody can do and that we do way too much of it. And that if you want to really do something that is worthwhile and valuable, you need to do deep work. And how do you go about doing that? And what does that mean? And that means things like, you know, quitting Twitter. Uh, It means saying no to tons of things. It means finding ways to get long periods of three, four, six hours where you can work quietly with intense focus um, and do this on a regular basis to create things. And that's where the real value can come from. And this is very hard for most people. I think it's a really interesting idea. Um, Like I mentioned about some of the hard things that I'm trying to be reading. uh, I think that some of that's very difficult to do in our ideas about modern open office space collaborative teams working together there's i know that you work independently a lot and i'm sure that that's valuable for you i know there's lots of research on creativity and brainstorming and that this argues that yes there can be real value but in working in groups but a lot of the big stuff happens not from working in groups or from working alone but from working alone and then coming to the group and then going back to work alone yep 
Right. And so this is this dialectic is really valuable and important. And uh, he talks a lot about how to do deep work. Uh, it is it's a really interesting book. I do have some issues with it because it's sort of got the professor privilege going on here. Sure, sure. <laughs> right. Where because it can be really hard in most organizations to, you know, or, uh, avoid all the meetings and all the other kinds of stuff. Um, and he's very privileged being a professor where he can control more of his schedule around that. Yeah. Um, so I think it needs to be taken to some extent with a grain of salt, but I do think it's very important. And I think it's an especially important book for managers. Mm-hmm. If you are leading a team of designers or anyone who is trying to solve hard problems, how do you create an environment where those people can have the kind of breakthroughs and the deeper insights? Is it by having an open workspace and having lots of meetings and whiteboards and post-its? Or is there something else that you can be doing and you can change that balance for your employees? In fact, I think it's probably a better work book um, in many ways in organizations for managers than it is for individuals because individuals often have a harder time um, uh, exerting that kind of control right. and convincing managers of that value. The second book I'm going to recommend here is something called Messy, The Power of Disorder to Transform Our Lives by Tim Harford. Both of these are really accessible books. Um, but the basic argument in this book is that we – overvalue tidiness and organization and structure and we undervalue the benefits of messiness and creative chaos shall we say uh-huh. uh, he goes through quite a few different examples this is a very broad he defines messiness in a very broad way not just in terms of physical things in our world um you know, he gives examples about collaboration and workspaces and um, automation and improvisation with speeches and all kinds of different things. But it is a really eye-opening book, I think, for a lot of us, and especially people who might be listening to this podcast because, I mean, I come from information architecture. You come from information architecture. I think we, if anything, are people who are really heavily biased towards uh, everything being neat and tidy or organized. Uh-huh. Really, one of our blind spots, we had the librarian's disease, right? right? Which is, right? Which is that messiness is inherently bad. And, uh, he find, he argues all of these kinds of ways where messiness is absolutely valuable and absolutely critical. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a total believer in that. I remember the, uh, there's work, uh, probably back in the eighties on piles and files, right? Yes. And, uh, and the, the value of your pile of stuff on your, on your desk as opposed to having it filed away in the the cabinet. Yeah. There's a series of interesting papers about that. What I liked about this book was that it had, it includes some of that, but he takes a very broad definition of messy here. Um, and that, and, and by being broad, he sort of opened my mind to a number of different ways in which, uh, mess exists in the world, not just sort of in the narrow informational, ways in which we tend to think interesting well carl um this has been an awesome conversation you have inspired me to uh do a little bit more deep work in in digging up the golden nuggets of planning um and uh you've you've, uh kind of given us some 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 awesome uh sort of leads to follow in that vein so um thanks so much for for taking the time to talk with us thanks for asking me to talk 